Good morning, Meadowbrook. Didn't think I was doing this on Thursday. <laughs> uh, just to give you a little bit of background. Uh, I'm my name is my name is Roy. Obviously, um, I'm married to my my high school sweetheart Jennifer, uh, who's the executive director actually of the place I now work. And uh, yeah, I pastored for 15 years, uh, 10 years in Petrolia as a youth pastor, uh, almost four years in Arthur, Ontario as their lead pastor, and then most recently at Lake Point. Uh, before making my way over to the to the Hope Center, and uh, we have two kids that are grown grown up now, 23 and 21. Our son's getting married in in the uh, in the summer, and so life is uh, life looks a lot different right now. But I'm really excited to be here and share with you today. Um, have you ever you ever felt miscast? You ever felt like people didn't understand you, and then when they got to know who you really are? They, they, all those things they thought about you, all of a sudden they're like, oh, you're actually not what I thought you were. As a kid, and still now, I'm a huge fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Now, do I have any other Toronto Maple Leaf fans with me? Okay, I'm just looking for my people. There they are. If you're a Red Wings fan, I will be praying for deliverance for you. But coming out of high school, I wanted to, what I actually wanted to be, it was not, not a pastor necessarily, it was I wanted to be a sports reporter. And so I actually went to school for journalism, and, uh, and I was, that was my plan, to be a sports reporter. Well, one day while, while I was in school, we had a former sports administration graduate come back to school to talk to the sports administration class. And he was now working for the Vancouver Canucks. And so it's, it was a Friday, and I, somebody, I think our teacher said, somebody should go interview him for our school newspaper. Well, Friday afternoon, all the other students were like, oh, I'm going home. It's, it, we're getting out of here. So I was like, all right, I'll do it. So I went over, and I interviewed. His name was Devin Smith. And I interviewed him and asked him some questions about, you know, what's it like to work in the NHL? What's it like to be around NHL players all the time? And, uh, and then I just kind of threw out a flyer question. How hard would it be for a, a college uh, journalism student to get press passes to a Leaf game? And he said, it's actually not that hard if you know the right people. And they said, would you like to go to tomorrow night's Leaf game? <laughs> uh, yeah. And so he told me, just meet outside a certain gate. And this was like in the 90s, this was old Maple Leaf Gardens and your name will be on the list. And I was on cloud nine. I'm 19 years old, huge Leaf fan, and now I'm getting to go into Maple Leaf Gardens and go into areas where the general public doesn't get to go. So part of me was thinking, I'm going to drive all the way to Toronto, and I'm going to get there, and they're going to have no idea who I am. But that wasn't true. I got there. I went to the gate they told me to go to, and they handed me a sticker with my name on it, with the Leafs logo, and they led me into this room where all the, all the press and all the officials go. They have this big buffet. So I grab my plate and I sit down at the table and I'm looking around. And it's a bunch of guys from TSN, the sports network, that I watch on TV all the time. They're sitting at my table. And I look at the far end. And sitting at the other end of my table is Gary Bettman, who's the commissioner of the NHL. And I just remember I didn't say a word the whole time. I was just starstruck. So after eating, I didn't know what to do, so I just followed the crowd. And the crowd of press, they went all the way up these stairs, and they got up into the press box. And that's where I sat and watched the entire game amongst people that I had watched on TV uh, in the press all these years. 
And when the final horn blew, again, I didn't know what to do. I just followed them all the way down the stairs. And I got to go to a place I never thought I would ever be in my whole life, in the Toronto Maple Leafs dressing room. And I looked around, and all my childhood heroes were there. It was Matt Sundin, Doug Gilmore, Wendell Clark, Felix Poffin, Kirk Muller, Ty Domi. Here I was, 19 years old, trying not to look out of place, but I definitely looked out of place. <laughs> and it was hard not being starstruck, but I tried. And I remember at one point, the mob was just around Matt Sundin. If you don't know, he's from Sweden. And they all had their microphones or their tape recorders in, so I just did what they did, and I held it out there. And I was so starstruck that I was two feet away from Matt Sundin, I didn't even notice that at one point, all the English-speaking media moved away, and it was only Swedish-speaking. And I'm standing there like that, realizing I don't understand any of the language at this point, and just moved on. But when you get into the dressing room you actually get to see a little bit of what some of the people that you see on TV, what they're really like. So you have all these ideas of what they're like from watching TV, watching interviews, but when the cameras turn off and the microphones are put away, you kind of get to see what they're really like. And so some of the players that I thought were like really great guys like Matt Sundin actually was a great guy. But some of the other players that I thought were great guys, when the microphones and the cameras went away, they were kind of rude and temperamental. A player that I grew up pretending to be when I played road hockey was Wendell Clark. Now, Toronto Maple Leaf fans, they love Wendell Clark. There's Wendell Clark. And the reason they love Wendell Clark is because Wendell Clark is not a big guy, but he would throw his body around and he would try to check people through the boards. And he would fight guys that are two or three times bigger than him, and yet at the same time he had great hands and he could score with the best of them. And so when you're looking at somebody who's regularly can beat people up, you're thinking, this guy's going to be tough. He's going to be kind of gruff. He's got this, probably this like rough demeanor. But it was so far from the truth. Wendell Clark is actually a very shy person, very soft-spoken, very accommodating. And at this point, he was an older player in the Leafs, and he just genuinely seemed like he loved being a hockey player, loved being in the moment, and when I sat down to interview him, he was so accommodating and so kind. And so my idea of what I thought he was going to be like, thankfully, was much different than what he really was. I think we've all had things assumed about us, where we've been labeled as one thing. And then when the person got to really know what we're like, they got to see something different. I think we do this with God. You might be surprised, but if I did a poll in this room of your thoughts on God and what God is like, we would get so many different answers just in this room. And if you go outside of these walls, it's even different. So today, this message is called I Am. And the question I want you to ponder for the remainder of our time together is, what do you think about God? And what do you think he thinks about you? And the answer to this question is far more important than you would ever, ever know. It's actually maybe one of the most important questions that you can ask. Because all of us have a picture of God. And some of those pictures that we have of God are right, some of them are partially right, and some of them are actually really far off. Pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer says this. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move to toward our mental image of God. So what comes into our minds when we talk about God is the most important thing 
about us. And the reason why our mental image of God is so important is because we become like what we worship. Worship is what gets our attention. Worship is what we adore. Worship's what our heart goes after. And so we ultimately, we become what we worship. So if this is true, then our image of God is so important. Because I think there's those that have lost faith. They've lost faith in God. They've lost faith that there is a God. And I think for some of those people, they've lost faith in God. And maybe that's you this morning. I think they lost faith in an image of a false God. I think they lost faith in a God that likely doesn't exist. And because your image of him is false, it's understandable that you would lose faith in that God. So today what I want to do is I want to look at some of the versions of God that don't exist. First one is this, guardian God. Now, you need to understand, no one has ever made the following argument. A good God does not allow bad things to happen to good people. And since bad things never happen to good people, there must be a good God. No one would say that. That's not an argument for the existence of God. You can't say that. So then on the flip side, when we say that since bad things happen to good people, there must not be a God. When you make that as your argument against God, and people do all the time, you make this claim that somewhere God made this claim. That he would never allow bad things to happen to good people. Did you know that this argument doesn't make sense at all? Because I hear people say it all the time, and a good people, and a good people. Because Christianity started, it began with a horrible thing happening to a very good person. Like if Christianity taught that God never allows bad things to happen to good people, it would never have made it outside of the first century. Pretty much every disciple would have had people weigh their, the teachings of this guardian God who never allows bad things to happen to good people, and they would see all of the disciples, one by one, executed for their faith. People would have debunked the whole thing. And Christianity, as we know, would have died. Guardian God does not exist. And if that's the God that you've put your faith in, I understand how you're... How you're your faith wavered. Because you put your faith in a God that would not allow bad things to happen to good people, and then you watch bad things happen to good people. And a God that doesn't allow evil in this world does not exist. You won't find that in the Bible. You won't hear God say that about himself. Yes, God is God. Yes, he has the power to intervene, and at times he does. But this gift of free will that he's given us allows things to go bad from time to time. Guardian God does not exist. The next God that does not exist is genie God. Genie God is the God that takes our reasonable wishes and grants them in the way that we would. Like, God, I'm not even asking you for three wishes. I'm not even saying give me a billion dollars or an island in the Pacific. 
I'm just saying, come on, God, a fair and reasonable God should at least do for me what I would do for someone else. And maybe you've prayed and you received no response. Or you asked for a sign and nothing came of it. Or you asked for a miracle and nothing. And so you drew your own conclusion. There must not be a God. And to an extent, you're right. Genie God does not exist. But here's the question. Where did you read that? Where, where did you hear that God always responds in the way that you would or you would expect him to? What's your source? Why do you expect God to be genie God and behave in the way that meets your expectations? And here's a better question for you. Do you even want that? Because if God did what I wanted all the time, I think I'd be in some trouble. I can say without a doubt, I don't always know what's best for me. You see, what I do know is God had a plan for my life. And, and that plan included, it, it didn't include journalism. It included presenting the gospel, the good news, to some of the most vulnerable people. But when I was younger, I had other plans. And so I bounced around a bunch of different careers before I got to where I'm at. One point, I was an IT person, a tech person. And I remember at one point, we, were, we had a young family. My kids were really young. And I got a job interview for a law firm in Toronto as their IT person. And I thought, oh, I'm going to be financially, I'm going to be set. My career is going to be like, it's going to be in line, big money, big job. And I prayed through the interview process. And I got through the interview process down to two people. And I remember, thank you, God. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for, for, for setting all of these things up. Like I was convinced this was God-ordained. How did I get here? And then I got a phone call. They picked the other guy. And I thought, God, are you kidding? Like I prayed for this. I promised to tithe on the extra income I was going to get. I mean, if I was God, if I was in charge, if it was someone else who wanted this, I would have at least done that for them. But God has more wisdom than I do. That's not even up for debate. And what I know is he saw a place that we call the Hope Center before anyone else did. And he knew the plan before when I didn't even know there was a plan. He knew my purpose when I couldn't. And what I'm thankful for today, I, I'm thankful for all the times that God said no. Genie God doesn't exist. The next one is romantic God. This is the God where you always feel his presence. You know when you first fall in love and like the whole world just seems lighter? It feels great. He or she walks in the room. And it's like everything stops and you've got butterflies and you just like, you just, you don't even walk. You just prance everywhere you go. <laughs> and you, when you're young, you believe that that's the feeling that drives the relationship. And then when the feeling goes away, uh-oh, the relationship's in trouble. Well, if you've been married for any length of time, you know that love is, is deeper and more layered than merely a feeling. See, th I'm thankful today that my wife 
doesn't stop loving me when she doesn't have that feeling. Because sometimes I say stuff and I do stuff and after I do it, I'm like, oh. And I never, I never question for a second whether she still loves me, but I question whether she still likes me in those moments. And if you believe in a romantic God, you believe that you shouldn't always, you be, if you believe in a romantic God, you believe that you should always feel God's presence at all times. And when you don't, God's not there. So you pray and you read your Bible and when you don't feel his presence, you come to the conclusion he's not present. We look at David in the Old Testament. In one of the Psalms that David wrote, Psalm 13, he's going through one of these moments where he, he doesn't feel God's presence. He, he doesn't feel like God is there. And he says this. He says, oh, Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? And he could have come to the conclusion based on his feelings that, that he doesn't, because he's not feeling God at all times, or he doesn't feel God in this moment, that God's not present, that he doesn't exist. The truth is, you're the least aware of things that are most constant. If you've ever flown on a plane, most times you don't know who the pilot is. You have no idea what his or her credentials are. You don't know how many, how many miles they've flown. You just hear them over the speaker system, welcoming you to the flight, giving you some instructions, telling you what time you're going to land in your destination. And in that first stage of the flight, if you don't like flying, you're probably like white knuckling the first part going off the runway. But once you get up into the air and you sort of like level out, you sort of take a deep breath, you take your seatbelt off, you start watching a movie, doing something on your phone, reading a book, maybe just lay back and just take a nap. And you spend very little time in that moment wondering who the pilot is. But when the plane hits turbulence and it drops 50 feet in, one, in, a, in a second, you start to wonder who the pilot is. When things aren't going well, or sorry, when things were going well, when you were in a spot where everything was leveled out and things were going well, can you imagine in that moment coming up every three, seconds, three minutes and knocking on the door to talk to the pilot? Hey, I haven't heard you in a little while. I just wanted to make sure you're still there. Okay, good. I'll be back. Just because you haven't felt the presence doesn't mean God's not there. Romantic God, the God where his presence is always felt, doesn't exist. Next one's this angry God. This is the God that is watching your every movement and just waiting for you to slip up. This God controls you with fear and guilt. And if it's enjoyable, the answer is no. This God claims they love you, but this God doesn't like you. Many people grew up in church and actually left church as an adult because they got tired of living a life that pleases angry God. They got tired of the guilt. They got tired of the shame, and they made this decision. They're just done. I'm done with this. I'm out. Like, if this is God, I think I'd rather live a godless life. And it's a shame. And that's you this morning. Where did you get this picture of God? Because that's not God. God's not an angry, abusive father. 
That's the wrong picture. Angry God is a false God. Here's the next one. Anti-science God. This one's tough for some people. Because you grew up and you were taught science is a bad word. Theology, the study of God and science, well, they were like two different boxers in two different corners, and you had to cheer for one of them or the other. And for some of you, that came from your science class when you were in high school. And they taught this evolution of, or this theory of evolution, and they didn't treat it as a theory. They called it a theory, but they presented it as a fact. But if it was a theory, how come we didn't learn any other theories? So science became the enemy. Because if you got behind science, then you were obviously anti-God. And so you struggled because there were times where science proved things that you couldn't deny. And then faith. Faith in God requires, well, faith. Like, I can't always prove it. So how do I choose God over science? And maybe you weighed the two and you were told to, you know, when it came to faith, you just need to stop thinking. Because religion requires you to have faith and sort of check your brain at the door. But that's not true. Because Christianity was not built on faith alone. There is very much an intellectual component to faith. God's not anti-science. And if you're a Christian here today, you're not anti-science either. You know how I know that? Because when someone in your family gets really sick, when someone has a heart attack, the first phone call that you make is not to your pastor. You don't load them in the car and drive them right to the church. You call 911 and you, an ambulance comes. And you pray when the ambulance is on its way. And you pray the whole way to the, to, the, to the hospital. And you pray while they're in the hospital. And you pray and you pray and you pray. But your actions say that you believe that God and science can coexist. If you have a disease, you want science to find a cure. But you also pray that God will heal. See, we, we become hypocrites at times when we turn to science for our health, but we reject it in all other areas. Science isn't to be feared. Christians have historically believed that God is, the, is God. He's the one that created the world and everything in it. And science has been the way in which we've discovered how God did it. Science answers how theology or the study of God answers Why? Some of the earliest scientists were men like Isaac Newton, Sir Francis Bacon, Galileo. They were all devout Christians that did not feel this tension of science and religion. They believed that science helped them grow closer to God. See, I believe from all these versions of God that we've been talking about today, that God has been miscast, misunderstood by people because of either what we've told ourselves or someone else has told us. This morning, we're going to finish our time together by looking briefly at the life of Moses. Now, in Exodus, we read about Moses. Moses goes down probably as one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world. And God chooses Moses to lead the enslaved uh, Israelites out of Egypt through an incredible set of miracles and, and, and circumstances. Moses just leads this incredible life, like this awesome life. God speaks to Moses through a burning bush, and he parts the Red Sea, gives Moses the Ten Commandments, and he just lives this unbelievable life. And in the culture of the day, there were many gods that were worshipped. There was many gods. 
And those gods were impersonal gods. Many of them were just hard to please. And many of them saw them as angry God. Even for the Hebrew people. There was still this sense that God was angry and just really hard to please. And so the extent of their relationship with God was to sacrifice in exchange for their sins. And they just hoped that would keep God off their back for a while. But Moses wasn't content with nameless, faceless, impersonal God. He wanted to know God. He wanted to see God. He wanted a different relationship than what they had with God. So in Exodus 33:11, it says, "The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend." And like I said, Moses has this relationship that kind of starts in a bizarre way through God speaking to him through a bush and from there, the relationship sort of develops, and, and, and he just wants more. He wants more of God. He's like, God, this is great and all, but, but I want to see you. I want to see you for who you really are. And so all of this sets up Exodus 35, and it's here that God chooses to reveal himself to Moses in no uncertain terms. And so he says to Moses, Moses, I'm going to let you See me for who I am. I'm not going to let you fill in the blanks of who I am. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you. And so the following passages are one of the most quoted passages in the Bible by others in the Bible. Like if I said to you, what is the most recognizable piece of scripture? Many of us would say John 3.16. But in Jewish culture to the Jewish people, these were the ones. But before I jump into Exodus 34, 6, and 7, let me, let's just set it up with, with verse 5. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. So Moses asked to see God, and God's like, well, you can't see me, see me. It would probably kill you. But I will pass by you and give you a glimpse of my presence. So after passing him by, he reveals his, his name to him, which is Yahweh. Verse 6, the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. And what he's saying here is, Moses, you want to know who I am. I am love. I am grace, but I'm also just. This is who I am. Now, when it comes to names, names are really important because names actually give you a glimpse into how close the relationship is that you have to somebody. So if I'm friends with you, I'm not going to refer to you as sir or madam, right? If it's like, for example, I've known George Bergen for a little while. So, you know, I'm not going to call him, genuinely, I'm not going to call him Mr. Bergen or Sir. I'm going to call him George. Now, I've got to play basketball with George. I don't know if you guys know, but George can ball. <laughs> and so, if you get the closer you get to someone, you know, maybe there's names that you have for people. They don't let anybody else come. So, you know, if I got closer to, I don't know if you'll ever let me call him this, but maybe if I got closer to George, maybe I start calling him G-Dog, right? <laughs> See, the more personal the name, the closer the relationship is. So in Genesis 1-1, where it says in the beginning, the word for God here is Elohim. 
And Elohim literally means God, but it's a title. Like there's some space between us and God with this name. But if we go back to Moses, Moses' life where he has this encounter with God at the burning bush, and God asks Moses to go to Egypt and lead his people out, he understandably says, well, who do I tell them sent me? And God responds with, I am. Which translated is hiya. You know, like when you were a kid and you would do a cruddy chop? Hiya. It's the same, same sound. So in the beginning, it's the beginning of a name that God would reveal to Moses in Exodus 34. So it's a little bit closer, but then God tells Moses that his name is Lord, or it's Y-H-W-H. And in the ancient Hebrew, there, there really weren't vowels. So many of the generation, for many generations, scholars debated, like, how do you even pronounce this name? I mean, in English, it's Lord, but how do I pronounce this word? But in but it's pronounced Yahweh. I remember there was this um, speaker that I was listening to at one point. He had this saying. He's like, when the world says no way, I say Yahweh. (laughs) But in Hebrew, this word is made up of four consonants, four sounds. And some people translate the actual W into a V. And it's Y is pronounced Yod. H is pronounced Hey. The W is pronounced, or V is pronounced Va, and the H is He. So in Hebrew, it is Yod, He, Va, He. And it's this intimate, close name. The scholars for many generations believe that when God gave Moses this name, he was showing his closeness. I'm going to invite the worship team to join me just as we, as we wrap up. But this name that he gave to, gave to Moses was, it was a symbol of closeness. How? Well, some scholars, some Jewish scholars actually believe that this is the sound of our breathing. It's, it's a yod, hey, bah, hey. It's this, it's this, the way we naturally breathe. And that God was showing Moses, Moses, this is my name. I am a personal God. Yod, hey, va, hey, or Yahweh. But Moses, I'm closer than your nearest breath. I'm, I'm closer than this impersonal God that you wouldn't settle for. I'm here with you. And here's what I want, to, want you to know as I end the message. I don't know what God you grew up believing in, hearing about, deciding this was who God was, but God is close. He's near. And just maybe, maybe you had it all wrong. Maybe you thought God was an impersonal God because he didn't answer your prayers like you thought he would or you expected him to. Maybe you thought he didn't care. Or maybe you saw him as angry, judge God sitting on the throne waiting for you to mess up. And that's a tough way to live. And I know for some of you in this room, that's how you grew up. I've talked to so many people 
who said I was so afraid of God. And that, was my, that, that defined my relationship with him. He was always disappointed in what I did. Or maybe you thought if there is a God, he's powerless and unable to interact with my life. Don't take my words, take God's. He says, I am a compassionate and gracious God. I'm slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. A God that is quick to forgive, but I'm a just God. He's a personal God, closer than your next breath. yod heh He's our Yahweh. Let's close our, close our eyes and pray together. Father God, I just thank you that you are, that you're not the impersonal God that we believe you to be at times. I believe that you see each person in this room and that you are closer than our next breath. God, I pray for the, I pray for the person that's here this morning who's maybe struggled with one of these gods that we talked about, these false gods. And maybe that's what they grew up, they were taught. God, maybe that's what they were taught in their church, the church they grew up in. And so God, I I just pray that you would continue as just like any other relationship. The more we care about the relationship, the more we wanna know about the person that we're in relationship with. I pray that, that there's someone here who's had this wrong idea of who you were and that you would draw them closer to you in relationship. God, I pray for the person here who's, who maybe their faith is wavering. They're not even sure whether they believe in you anymore. God, I believe the reason they don't know if they believe in you is because they have put their faith in the wrong God. So God, reveal yourself. In the same way Moses says, God, I'm not just content with with knowing of you. I want to know you. I want to see you. I pray that would be the cry of our hearts this morning. God, I don't want head knowledge. I want to see you, God. I want to know you. I want to feel you close to me. And then, guys, in those moments, I pray that you reveal yourself to each of us in our own personal way. Lastly, God, I thank you for Meadowbrook Church. I thank you for a church that, that loves you with all their heart, loves their community, and wants to be an extension of you into that community. So thank you for their presence here in Leamington. And I pray your blessing, God, as a new pastor comes and takes this platform. God, I pray your blessing on him even even before him and his wife even arrive here. God, I pray that you would just put put an incredible covering over them so they can minister and pastor to this, this congregation. Bless everything that they do, everything that they touch. Lord, we ask this in your name. Everybody said...
Amen. Amen.